When I was in law school, I was initially thinking that I wanted to go into criminal law. I was open, open to being either on the defense or the prosecution side. So what I discovered was that when you mention to someone that you are considering becoming a criminal defense attorney, the question that you will invariably be asked is, would you defend someone if you knew they were guilty of killing innocent people? Now, I didn't end up practicing criminal law, but my apologia, my apologia for my career choice at that time was that defending an accused, even if they are guilty, helps to protect the constitutional rights of people who are innocent as well. Now, as a priest, I often get asked a similar question. If someone confessed to you a really horrible thing, like murder, how could you keep it a secret? Here, of course, the answer is clear. Our faith demands that priests absolutely maintain the seal of the confessional. Because the church recognizes that without the benefit of the seal, people would be dissuaded from being totally transparent to God through the priest who is hearing the confession in persona Christi. Thankfully, in most places in the United States and in other developed countries, priests are legally protected in their duty to keep the seal confidential by protecting them from being forced to testify about or reveal what they might have learned in confession. Laws which, by the way, also protect ministers of other religions who give po confidential pastoral counseling to their followers, even if this does not purport to be sacramental confession. I was talking one time to a priest who worked in prison and jail ministry. Interestingly, he said that police and prosecutors were often very happy to allow people in jail the opportunity to see a priest. And I asked why. And he said it, that it was because their experience was that people who had the opportunity to go to confession often, often desired to come clean and admit their guilt, sometimes even confessing to additional crimes that they weren't charged with or even suspected in. Now, to be clear, this is solely because the experience of confession made that person want to freely admit their responsibility for their crimes. Just as a priest can never say anything to anyone ever about what is said in confession, neither can he condition absolution on the penitent revealing any sin or fault to anyone outside of the confessional. He can certainly suggest that a person consider making amends to others, but he can never try to pressure or coerce someone into admitting their actions or guilt to another. The confessional is the supreme tribunal of our consciences. It's where a person stands without pretense before God. That's why the seal of the confessional is so sacrosanct. No person and no human authority has any right to interfere with or intrude upon the privacy of the sacrament of confession. That said, it's also the case that all sacraments have a public character. Canon law, for example, says that even a mass celebrated privately by a priest is not truly a private act, because every time the holy sacrifice of the mass is offered, it benefits the entire church all those living now, and all those who have died in Christ. Something similar can be said about the sacrament of confession. You've probably heard it said that when a person sins, even if that sin is wholly private and personal, it wounds the body of Christ. 
especially so if that person has fallen from the state of grace. Well, it's also the case that any time a sinner is absolved in the sacrament of confession and restored to the state of grace, the body of Christ is made stronger and healthier. The grace of sacramental absolution doesn't just heal the sinner, but also, in some way, the entire church. When anyone grows closer to Christ, all of us grow closer to Christ. When a person experiences divine forgiveness, the entire human community benefits. Today, the church celebrates the Feast of Divine Mercy. But Divine Mercy Sunday does not exist merely as a conduit for indulgences. To understand its wider dimension, we have to understand something of the history of the devotion to divine mercy. It began with the vision of Christ that was given to St. Faustina Kowalski, a Polish nun, in the 1930s. Jesus urged St. Faustina to spread the devotion to his divine mercy, saying, Tell the whole world of my great mercy, that whoever approaches the fountain of life on this second Sunday of Easter will be granted complete forgiveness of sins and of its punishment. Mankind will not have peace until it learns to trust in my mercy. At the time, the world was witnessing the rise of two supremely dehumanizing forms of totalitarianism, Nazism and communism. The people of Poland, amongst others, would suffer living under both, first the Nazis and then the communists. Communism and Nazism were shaped by heartless ideologies of conquest and domination, both reborn of a reductionist image of man, not man created in the image and likeness of God, capable of giving and receiving mercy, but man as a materialistic entity, operating at the mercy of the impersonal forces of evolution, race, history, or economics. As St. John Paul II would say, of his fellow Pole, St. Faustina became the herald of the one message, capable of offsetting the evil of those twin ideologies, the fact that God is mercy, the truth of the merciful Christ. Throughout history, in times of conflict and suffering, and times of distorted ideologies, God has always visited his people in a way that provided a powerful counter-narrative to the brutal forces then ascendant in the world. We saw this in the series of miraculous apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary that occurred in the modern era, at Guadalupe in Mexico in the 1500s, at La Salette in Lourdes in France in the 19th century, in Fatima in Portugal in 1917, and at Cabijo in Rwanda in 1981. In each of these, God gave his people a message of hope and confidence to face the future in the midst of social strife and upheaval. So too, St. Faustina's vision of divine mercy. It's the simple but profound message that God is, above all, merciful, that Christ came to manifest the forgiving heart of our loving Father. It's little different today. We live in a world and in a culture where the concept of mercy seems quite distant to us. In our society, no one ever seems to forgive or to forget. No one seems to be willing to move on from past hurts, to compromise, or to seek genuine reconciliation. Everyone has an angle and an interest. It's all conflict and division and winner-take-all. 
Devotion to Christ's divine mercy shows us another way, that because we can be reconciled to God, we can be reconciled to one another, that because we are freely forgiven in the sacrament of confession, we can forgive others without cost, that because we know the depths of God's mercy, we can be merciful to one another, that we cannot save ourselves, but that we can allow God to save us. In past generations, our society had the wisdom of recognizing the value of legally protecting the confidentiality of the seal of confession by giving priests immunity from being coerced into revealing what they might have heard from a penitent. There was in that at least some recognition of the value to society of allowing that divine encounter with mercy between the soul and God in the confessional to take place that the cost of protecting it outweighed any supposed greater good that would come from invading it. There was some understanding that a society that protected the space necessary for people to receive God's mercy would be a society in which public mercy and reconciliation would be all the more plentiful. We pray that that understanding continues at least in our law, even as society's grip on the Christian faith becomes all the more tenuous. Our Lord said to his disciples, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, whose sins you retain are retained. This statement captures something of the essence of divine mercy. It's something that we receive from God, of course, especially in the sacraments but it's also something that as Christians we are meant to abide in like the air around us that we breathe. And because it's given to us, we are meant to live it. We are meant to share it with others. We are meant to let it overflow and bring with it love, joy, peace, hope, and mercy to the whole world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.